When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and we're back. Now, the people out there will be saying, well, we haven't been anywhere. But uh, it's been a month since the World Championship. Podcast has been on a break. And I'll say right from the start, we're not back on a weekly basis yet. Still uh, early summer, after all. Um, but there'll be three specials um, coming up in the next few weeks. And again, people will be saying, well, we'll be the judge of whether they're special or not. Um, this is the first one. And this is just a catch-up on what's been happening, really, since the Crucible. Then coming up, we've got to an author special, book special. We'll be speaking to some uh, people who've written snooker books that have all come out recently. And then hopefully we'll also have a fan special. We had one last year. And we'll be talking to some snooker fans about their experiences of going to tournaments, what they enjoy, what could be improved, etc., etc. Uh, but it's been a month now since Luca Purcell won the World Championship. May felt to me like a long month. You know, April flies by when you're watching the, the, the World Championship, but May was a long old month. Of course, the final was on May the 1st. Uh, Luca's been enjoying himself, and so he should. <laughs> so he should. He's uh, achieved a lifetime's ambition, and uh, he's, uh, he's uh, taking a break. And uh, meantime, of course, we had another uh, tournament at the Crucible, the World Seniors Championship, the following week, and that was won once again by Jimmy White. I have to say, I didn't see very much of it, but... Uh, he seemed to play well. He struggled a little bit to kill off the final, but he beat Alfie Burden in the final. So Jimmy White has won that title again. And really just underlining, you know, the good form he's been in the last year. He had a, he had a good season. Of course, he earned his place back on tour as of right through that one-year list. And so he's got a two-year card as of right. And uh, fair play to Jimmy. You know, his enthusiasm for snooker just never dims. And uh, that's, that's great. And we'll see whether he gets to the champion of champions. The, the, the issue there is there's a lot of one-time winners of tournaments. And obviously... There's a lot of tournaments above the seniors on the pecking order. So whether he makes it into that or not, we shall see. But if he does, I'm sure there'll be a lot of excitement in Bolton later this year. We've also had the first Q School event has come to a conclusion. The second one we'll do this week. So congratulations to the four players who made it through. We had Andrew Higginson, who was one of those players you were kind of surprised ever dropped off in the first place. But he's back on. Andrew Padgett is back on. Alexander Ersenbacker is a player I, I like watching. Um, he made it back on. He was very emotional in the World Snooker Tour interview um, because he felt that you know things were going badly wrong from last year. I mean, he's famous as a backer for beating Ronnie O'Sullivan, it seems, every time they play. But he didn't have many wins over anyone else and fell off and was in a bit of a state, really, because he's still only a young man in his mid-twenties. But he got back on, so he's got another two-year card. And I guess most excitingly, Liam Pullen. He's only 17, uh, teenager, on for the first time. Um and a uh, friend of Stan Moody, so who's also on the tour. So, you know, people say there are no young British players coming through. It's not true. There are. It's going to be difficult. All I'll say, and I always say this, and no one ever listens, but I'll say it again. Let's just leave these 
kids alone. Don't put pressure on them. Don't. I've already seen people saying, yeah, he'll be in the top 16. Don't make predictions. Just let them play. They're young. Let them play. Let them find their way. And it may take a while. They may break through quickly, whatever. But just let them play. Enjoy it. You're supposed to enjoy it at that age. And don't put too many pressures on them by telling them they're going to be this, that and the other. Because it's hard. We know it's hard. And everyone sort of comes through at their own pace. Speaking of which, because Ronnie O'Sullivan, uh, he came through very quickly. He won the UK Championship when he was 17. Um, and he's, his new book is out, um, Unbreakable. I have to say, I've not read it yet, um, but uh, it's been widely publicised in a lot of interviews. Including Desert Island Discs, he was on last week, which where he was, I thought, very engaging company. Spoke very well, very interesting about his sort of, not really about the snooker, but just his life and, and the sort of... The struggles he had when he was younger and the fact that he's overcome them, I thought he spoke well. And he's also on Stephen Hendry's Q-Tips channel, which is a fantastic uh, uh, thing for the snooker world, I think. Stephen uh, does that uh, pretty much every week with various people. And he, I know he was looking to get Ronnie on and, and he got him on. So 14 world titles between them um, and a good, good chat between them as well. And so you can check that out on Stephen's YouTube channel. We're still waiting for the official news about the Chinese players who've been suspended in the match-fixing inquiry. The inquiry's been held. We're waiting for the, well, let's say the punishments to be handed down because that, that's, that says they're guilty. We haven't heard the verdict yet, but if they are guilty, there will be bans handed out and there's been sort of already a story in the Times newspaper to that effect. So we don't know officially. Of course, it was an independent inquiry by Sports Resolutions, so they, I guess, are in control of when it's announced. But we, we keep being told it's imminent, so it may even be this week. But uh, I think I think most people are bracing themselves for bad news. I don't think there's going to be much cheer to be brought from that. We'll see when the news comes out. But the big news, really, while I've been away, and we've had this feature um, running banal meetings with snooker players, and this is where uh, snooker fans have, have run into snooker players, but uh, no meaningful chat really has been exchanged. It's just been um, sometimes no chat at all. But they've met people in petrol stations and supermarkets, and it's all there. It's all part of uh, life's rich tapestry. Well, I have to say, uh, you know, I'm loath to say this on my own podcast, I can top all the stories that have come in. It doesn't involve a snooker player, but I, uh, very recently, last week in fact, I was at the National Theatre in London, to see a play uh, called The Motive and the Cue. It's about uh, John Gielgud directing Richard Burton in, in a production of Hamlet, written by Jack Thorne, very much for the theatre crowd, um, which, uh, I, which I count myself as, 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 as one of their number. But anyway, great play, but in the interval, this is, this is what happened. So I, I was wearing... I've got, have you ever seen Breaking Bad, the TV show? I have this T-shirt, uh, Los Polos Habanas, it's the, the chicken shop in the, in the, in the show, it plays quite a big part in the show. So I was wearing that T-shirt, okay? Um, and I was sat in the interval in the foyer, just waiting for, you know, the, the, the bell to ring to, to go back in. I was just sort of idly on my phone. And I was aware, I was sat down, I was aware that someone was stood in front of me, quite close. And I looked up and this middle-aged man was basically pointing at my T-shirt. And then he walked off. That's all that happened. He just pointed at it and walked off. I looked at him. I thought, I know, I know him. I think he looks, he looks like Brian Cranston. Now, Brian Cranston is the main actor from Breaking Bad. He played Walter White um, and won many awards for it. And I, I looked at him and I thought, hang on, that is Brian Cranston. So Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad was pointing at my Breaking Bad T-shirt. And I saw him later on. It was him, definitely. And people going up to him. And I felt bad, actually. I thought, oh, he doesn't need to see this at the theatre. You know, this is the National Theatre in London. He didn't need to see this. Um, 
I was too slow to, to get a picture or anything like that. But anyway, that's that was my banal meeting with Brian Cranston. I was wearing a T-shirt from the show that he was in, and I'm pretty sure he gets no revenue at all from it. Because bear, bearing in mind, I bought it off, off Amazon. <laughs> I suspect it wasn't official merchandise. Um, anyway, so that's uh, that's what's been happening. But uh, we've got had some emails, and that's what this this first edition. Uh, it's not really a new series yet. It's a su- summer special, um, <laughs> part one uh, of three. And uh, anyway, Richard Colley has written in. He said, I know you're freelance, but I noticed as well as working for Eurosport as a commentator, you also show up on the BBC credits as a statistician in the World Championship. Please can you explain what you do exactly in that role and how you fit it around your work for Eurosport? You're truly a busy person. Well, <clears throat> I've been doing that a while. I, do, I, I actually do that for all the, the broadcasters, BBC, ITV and Eurosport. Essentially, it is uh, I'm responsible for compiling player profiles which go to, well, whoever, whoever wants them, but primarily the presenter, uh, commentators, the producer, the graphics operators, the people in the production team who need them. And what they contain, and it's, uh, well, I'll just call one up on the screen. I know you can't see this, but it's just for my own benefit. So I'm going to call up, well, Luca Brussels, why not? So I can tell you what's on the profile. So we have the name Luca Brussels from Belgium, his date of birth, his hometown, the year he turned professional, his current world ranking, his highest ever world ranking, prize money he earned last season, the prize money he's earned so far this season, uh, his total career prize money, his career centuries, the centuries he made last season, the centuries he made this season, his highest break in a tournament, and then a list of his ranking title wins. And then under that, there's all the results from last season, so tournament by tournament, uh, literally, so we start the, at the uh, Championship League, Beat Dean Young, he lost to Chan Bing Yu, he lost to Pang Jung Yu. This was the season before last. He won the Championship League last season, of course. Um, but on and on and on. So that's the that's the previous season and then the current season. So imagine we're still at the World Championship. The last entry there would be in the semi-finals. He beat CJ Wee 17-15. But it's all the results, all the people he's beat. And then I do a thing under that, 10 facts about the player. So these are just little little things that commentators or presenters could drop in to what they're doing. So, for example, number one for Brussel is that he won the European Junior title at the age of 14 and the European Amateur title at the age of 15. Um, and then, for example, it says he reached the UK Championship quarterfinals in 2012. So, listing really the career highlights of the player. And then under that, at the World Championship, we have his World Championship record. So, each year that he's played in the World Championship, including qualifiers, the round he got to and who beat him. So, the first time he played, he actually got to the Crucible. 2012, first round, lost 10-5 to Steve Maguire. 2013, qualifiers, he lost 10-6 to Fraser Patrick, and so on and so on. Under that, we have the Crucible stats. So, uh, Crucible appearances, this is before the final. So, before the final, it's his sixth appearance at the Crucible, including this year. He'd won nine, he'd, he'd played nine matches, he'd won four. His highest break at the Crucible up to that point was 1-4-1. He'd made 15 centuries, and he'd made £86,000 at the Crucible. Uh, all that will obviously be very different next year going in. And then under that, the head-to-head with the player that he's playing in that match. So, it, it's uh, of course, in the case of the final, it was Mark Selby. And Mark Selby led him 5-2. The head-to-heads, um, a line has to be drawn and has been drawn uh, under what events actually count for the official head-to-heads. Because there are tournaments, the Championship League, the most obvious. Uh, we had the Pro Series as well where they're played under very short formats. And uh, a decision was taken, it was actually taken before I, I started doing this by, by the person doing it prior to me, that best of fives 
really shouldn't count in a head-to-head. You know, a one-frame match shouldn't count, shootout shouldn't count, because they tend to skew the overall head-to-head. It's subjective, but a, lo- a line had to be drawn somewhere, and that's where it's drawn. But other than that, it's all professional tournaments, um, and the head-to-head is, is uh, the, the, uh, the sort of the last line in the profile. So that's basically what I do. I do that for every player that you see on television. It is quite time-consuming, but obviously once you've started it, you've just got to update them, so it doesn't take that long, really. And it's very useful for me personally as well, just for my own work. Um, it sort of, almost by osmosis, you sort of know, know what people have been doing. Um, so, yeah, so that's uh, essentially what what that's about. Phil Spivey, he says, What a sensational world championship we've witnessed. It's highly subjective, but I think this is one of the greatest individual victories ever seen for a couple of reasons. Mainly the style and manner of Luca Brussel's snooker. The only other time I can recall a player playing this way throughout the entire World Championship was Judd Trump in 2011. But in this case, Brussel managed to win the whole thing. His shot selection and execution was the bravest we've ever seen. Also, the manner of his victories. Two comebacks from large deficits, and in his other matches, he withstood comebacks from his opponents. All of his matches were close and exciting. And the way he dictated the tempo of the final was astonishing. Finally, has anyone ever had a tougher route to the final? Three multiple world champions and all-time greats were defeated. He also had possibly the toughest final, uh, first-round draw in Ricky Walden. And while on paper his semi-final was against a debutant, the way CJWE played in building a 14-5 lead certainly removes any suggestion of a favourable opponent. I do hope C recovers from this. He may go on to be a serial winner, as some have said but I worry he may struggle to establish himself now. He had a very quiet first season back on tour until exploding into life at the Crucible. Uh, This may indicate that he's not yet ready for the expectations that will be heaped upon him. However, I hope I'm wrong and would love to see him build on an outstanding debut. We'll just deal with that first, actually, uh, (coughs) Phil. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing, really, isn't it, as I was saying about the the, the guys who've qualified. I mean, we will be under more scrutiny next season for sure. But you would think, I know that the, the manner of the defeat must have been hard to take, but you would think he would have a lot more confidence having proved that he can play, you know, that well on that stage. So it'll be interesting to see how he sort of fares next season. And let's hope he, he does push on. In terms of Brussel, I mean, it's, it's, I think you can sort of compare him to a lot of players actually at the Crucible. Um, a, a young Stephen Hendry who came through and, and was very brave in the, in his shot selection. I guess Alex Higgins, not 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 so much the sort of the the glamour shots, but just again that bravery, that that willingness to to take everything on, death or glory. Joe Johnson, people have compared him to in terms of being an outsider who's come through and sort of won it with a smile on his face. Um, yeah, I mean, still, an, I think you're right when you say it's one of the great achievements. It just is because, not least because he'd never won a match there before. You mentioned Judd Trump as well. Again, exciting start of play. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll move on. You're not done yet. You said in your last podcast, one email was very critical of Selby Starler playing the semi-final. However, I feel it's only fair to point out that Mark Allen was equally responsible for the way the match went. Allen's had a great season, partly by developing a more measured approach, and he's entitled to do that. It just seems unfair that Selby bears the brunt of the criticism, and he went on to contribute to a fantastic final, playing very open snooker in response to Brussels' style. I actually enjoyed the Selby-Allen match. It's great to have a variety of styles. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think Selby forever is going to have this tag of being a player that certain people don't like watching, and that's fair enough. You know, you don't have to like everything 
as long, in my opinion, as it, as it doesn't spill over into personal abuse, because Mark Selby's a nice guy, just been there to, I think, Windsor Castle um, to pick up his MBE from Princess Anne, which is a very proud day for him and his family, bearing in mind, you know, the tough start he had. He would never have imagined as a boy he'd be, he'd be well, part of the establishment, basically, going to Windsor Castle. And uh, Princess Anne, he, according to Mark anyway, uh, watched some of the final. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, make of that what you will. Um, Phil has, Phil's not stopped yet. He's still going. He said, uh, I've been interested while listening to past episodes of your podcast to hear what you've said about commentary. In particular, I've also long wondered why the BBC have two ex-players together, whereas Eurosport and ITV hold the traditional model of a commentator with a journalistic background with an ex-player to provide expert analysis. While I think all the BBC commentators are individually good and some are excellent, it would work better if they employed the usual model. Really enjoy the podcast. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Phil. I mean, this subject of commentary, I think, is over-discussed. But as you've mentioned, I don't mind um, picking up the bat on. In some ways, the BBC, they are closer to the traditional model than uh, people maybe appreciate. Here's a question. How many times did John Virgo and Dennis Taylor commentate together for the BBC at the Crucible? The answer is zero, because actually those two have become the mainstays of lead commentary. What do we mean by lead commentary? I mean, this is commentary is a subject. It's a strange subject in a way because it's one that pretty much everybody thinks they're an expert in, even though they've never done it and don't really understand how it works. But traditionally in sport, and football is the obvious example. So on Sky Sports, on Super Sunday, you have Martin Tyler and Gary Neville. Martin Tyler is the lead commentator. Gary Neville is the analyst. Martin Tyler, therefore, is there to, to lead the commentary, to identify the players, to call the goals, and to add information and context. Gary Neville is there to analyse the play itself and to give opinions about you know, what's happening on the field. And in snooker, that was always the, the model as well. So the lead commentator in snooker is often from a more journalistic background. They wouldn't necessarily have been a player. Clive Everton, of course, was both, which is why he was so good, I think. He was a journalist and a professional player. Um, but typically, the lead commentator's role in snooker is to set the scene, to explain what the match means, what's, what the stakes are. It might be something to do with getting in the next tournament or keeping place in the top 16 or on the tour or, 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 or whatever, trying to get to a stage of a tournament for the first time. To add information and context, the player there is there to talk about the shots, really, and to talk about it from a playing perspective, to give opinions about the shots, to maybe question some of them, to praise some of them to talk from a snooker player's perspective. Um, and But the lead commentators, well, they won't necessarily get involved in that, although sometimes you, you find yourself you do because maybe you're just talking when something happens. But your role is also to monitor what's happening on the table so that you're not doing your stuff when, the, when there's an important shot. And I'll just give you an, a simple example. Okay, there's one loose red, um, and then the rest of the bunch are together. You, if you're watching, you can see, okay, the player is going to pot that red, he's going to go high on the blue, and then he's going to split the pack. Therefore, you can't be talking about his record in this tournament, you know, anecdotes about that, because there's a key shot coming up. That pack split is such an important shot. So as a lead commentator, you might not necessarily be describing what's happening, but you have to be conscious of it to allow the player to then come in and analyse the pack split and explain why it's important and how it might lead on to them winning the frame. Similarly, players sometimes will deal in stats, and that's fine. Uh, but most of the ones I work with 
I mean, I'm very lucky that the, the players I work with, we have a good understanding of what the other person does. They know what I do. I'll open and close the frames. I'll do the information during the frames. And I know, I know that they'll analyse the shots that are played. And where that helps, I think, is... And some people may disagree, I'm sure they will, but it means you tend not to over-talk because you are sticking to what you should be doing. It's not a free-for-all. Um, you're not sort of unsure about what you should be doing. You have your role and you stick to your role. And that a lot of sport on television is still done that way. Now, you mentioned the BBC. To an extent, that happens there as well because, as I say, Virgo and Taylor are established as those, in those lead commentator roles. It's not quite as defined as it would be at Eurosport or ITV. Um, and with some other pairings, it's even less defined, I think. Um, but essentially, you know, most matches, most big matches at the Crucible, one of those two would have been on them. I think John Virgo was at the end of the, of the final and Dennis was on earlier that night. Um, so to, to a degree, that model still kind of applies. Um, I think it's certainly helpful if you have an established or if you understand who the lead commentator is going to be, because there are certain things that they do. As I say, opening the frame, closing the frame. If you know you're doing that, then you can put some thought into what you're going to say. And certainly wrapping up the end of the final, because those words may well be replayed. We know of several examples where they are many years, many decades in front. Um, traditionally, the lead commentator will be the voice when it's frame ball or, or you know, or important moment like that. But that's not always the case. And it doesn't have to be always the case. Some players like to to take that as well. And that's fine as long as they're conscious that it is that big moment. Uh, but basically, from my experience, and as I'm fortunate in the people I work with, it works really well, the system we have. The BBC took some criticism based on comments from Judd Trump a few years ago, two or three years ago now, and they have made a conscious effort to bring in current players, which I think people like. So we've had Mark Allen has got involved. Obviously, Sean Murphy uh, is very much involved um, as a regular commentator and, and studio pundit. Karen Wilson, I think, did some for them this year. So that's a slight change, but that's nothing new. If you go back to the early days of snooker on television, Dennis Taylor was a regular commentator on ITV. Now, I will say this. I don't recall him winning any tournaments on ITV, <laughs> actually. I think all his successes are on the BBC. Um, but he was a commentator for ITV. Um, when he, I mean, before he was world champion, even he was doing that. So what Sean Murphy's doing is not unusual. Some people say it takes too much uh, time away from sort of preparing for his matches. That's something that he's argued against, and that's kind of, you know, a circular argument. Seem to be any real resolution to that. Um, but players commentating, John Virgo, when he started, he was a, he was a top player. Um, in the mid-80s, John Spencer was a regular commentator, people like Eddie Charlton. Um, so it's, it's nothing new, but uh, there is a... I suppose one argument against it is that if you're... Certainly if you're still in the tournament, if you've not been knocked out, you know, objectivity is maybe a challenge um, if you're still involved in the event. If you're commentating on someone you may play. Um, but anyway, that's kind of it, really, in terms of commentary. Um, I think the traditional model works. But it's not to say it can't work with two players. And it's not to say, by the way, that players can't do the league commentary role. I think where they would struggle, actually, though, is at Eurosport. Because at Eurosport, because it's a pan-European broadcast and there's lots of... Uh, when, when we don't have a studio, the, the league commentator has to present the show. And that is quite a challenging thing if you're not used to it. People talking in your ear and you're having to time things and, and so on. That's more of a sort of broadcaster skill, really. It's not to say a player couldn't learn it over time. 
Um, but I don't know many who would actually, who actually want to do that role, really. Um, anyway, that's kind of from someone who's done it for 17 years. That's what I kind of think of it. But um, as I say, from my perspective, uh, I enjoy working with all the people. One thing you, you have to learn is how the, the, the player that you're with works. Everyone has a slightly different approach. Um, some people do quite a lot of research. Some people do, don't do any. <laughs> um, and some people talk more than others. And even if it's things like, you know, leaving the microphone on. I mean, I always advise people to turn the microphone off when they're not speaking because for two reasons. One, it, it should mean you don't over-talk. Um, and secondly, it indicates to your co-commentator, you know, when you're not speaking, if you lean forward to turn the microphone on, you know that they are going to speak. So it means you're not sort of talking across each other. And I think the other challenge that maybe the, the commentators of old don't have is the, the, the commentary on your commentary, <laughs> which you get. Obviously, players get a lot of um, unsolicited feedback about how they're doing, and that's that's true of broadcasters as well. People like Ted Lowe and Jack Carnham. I mean, people might have written letters to the Radio Times, but they would have taken three weeks to be published. Now, if someone doesn't like what you've said, um, they'll let you know. Uh, you have to just basically brush it off, I think. Um, uh, uh, the only time it annoys me is, is literally when... It's about a match I'm, I haven't been commentating on. That happened at the Crucible this year. The the, uh, the Mark Allen um, Fang Zheng Yi match that was interrupted but not halted by the protest. As someone was saying, I'd said things on that match. I wasn't commentating on it. I was on the other side with Perry and Milkins, which of course wasn't able to continue. Um, but that's the modern world, isn't it? And if you want to be a popular commentator, then you really need to either be retired or dead because everyone always says about the old guys how great they were. I can assure you, if those people were still commentating, they'd get the same abuse as the modern commentators. It happens in all sports. It happens in all walks of life. It's just something that's there in the background. You can either uh, worry about it or not. I don't really know anybody who seriously is that bothered by it. You know, you're, you're there to serve a wide constituency and as we know, or as we should know, uh, real life extends far beyond Twitter. Now, Christine has written a very interesting email here. She says, I hope you're well and getting a chance to relax after a busy season. Uh, yeah, she says, you said you were hoping to go to America. I was. I haven't, actually, for various reasons, but hopefully uh, next year. But anyway, Christine says, I read somewhere in the publicity around the Pastor Julian book. This is The Natural by uh, Luke Williams, who will be coming on the book special in a few weeks. It says that he was such a good play, made high breaks without the cue ball ever hitting a cushion. That was before the two 147s at the Crucible. So I got to thinking that each Crucible 147 could be ranked by the number of times the cushion was hit during each break. There's no point starting a project without buying new stationery, so I bought a snooker score sheets book and got to work. No idea if this is something that is logged and available elsewhere online, but I enjoyed doing it and watching them in order was like fast-forwarding through my life so far. Bring back the purple score bar. So this is a sensational thing, really, that Christie's done. She's watched every Crucible maximum, and she's going to count down from who's, who, who within that 147 break hit the cushions the most to who hit them the least, okay? So <clears throat> by that score that the, the person who, who hit the least cushions, you could argue, made the best maximum. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But anyway, let's, let's count them down. So, okay, so this year, Kyron Wilson in his maximum hit the cushion 30 times. Jimmy White in 1992, 26 times. Stephen Hendry in 2012, 25 times. Ali Carter in 2008, 24 times. Uh, Stephen Hendry in 1995 and Ronnie O'Sullivan in 2003. 
The cue ball hit the cushion 23 times. Cliff Thorburn in 83. And this is the one that surprised me slightly. Ronnie O'Sullivan, 97. Stephen Hendry, 2009. John Higgins in 2020. The cue ball hit the cushion 22 times. Now, you'd have thought Ronnie's maybe that would have been the least because it was so quick. Um, was there even time to hit cushions? But anyway, Christina's been through this and she has all the footage and she logged it all. Mark Williams, 2005, and Mark Selby this year, 2023, 20 times the cue ball hit the cushion. Neil Robertson, 2022, 18 times. So number one, with just 15 times that the cue ball hit the cushion, was Ronnie O'Sullivan's maximum in 2008. Christine says it's shocking to see Ronnie at the top, I know. The Robertson one surprised me. I don't remember it being so good, but on this measure, it's great. They're all amazing, but you know what I mean. I had to guess that the cue ball did hit after Higgins' eighth thread, as it wasn't clear on the coverage. And a few after the final blacks are guesses. Well, that's it. <laughs> added a little caveat there, which slightly <laughs> causes it to question some of the figures. But anyway, that's a sterling work from Christine. You know, some people just waste the time. But that was a fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, bit of research. So the what we're saying is that the maximum at the crucible, where the cue ball has hit the cushion the least number of times, was Ronnie O'Sullivan, but not 97, the fastest ever, five minutes eight seconds. It was in 2008, and of course the next day, Sir Ali Carter made his first time to be two in the same uh, in the same one. But anyway, thank you for that, Christine. That's fascinating. Uh, we move on. <coughs> so I've had a few people um, just feeding back about uh, trips to tournaments, which we always like to hear. And as I say, there will be hopefully a fan special coming up in a few weeks. Kevin Hodgson is up first. He said, "I was attending the World Championship at the Crucible for the third time at the quarterfinals this year, and had a fantastic day." the afternoon and evening sessions. This year was especially great, and seeing Luca lift a trophy the following week was amazing and felt written in the stars after we saw him smash Ronnie off the table by taking all seven frames in that final session of their match. However, I've now got more beef with WST than Hussein had with Ronnie. <laughs> a group of us attended the Crucible and all had an earpiece radio from events during previous seasons. We'd been informed previously that it should work elsewhere later. We found, however, that during the first mini-session of the afternoon... They were no longer picking up the FM signal as expected. No big deal. I quite enjoyed the game with that commentary for a change occasionally anyway. Not trying to do you out of a job here. Thank you, uh, Kevin. He said, we went to chat to the radio vendors dur during the first interval who said WST will only guarantee that the radios will work until the end of the season. And also the price of new radios had increased from £10 last season to £12 this season. We asked if we could exchange an old radio for a new one at a discount, but were told that's not a possibility. Given we're at the World Championship, which we pointed out is at the end of the season, we didn't think it was really good value for money and therefore went without commentary for the rest of the day. My niche rant is as follows. Oh, we love a niche rant. Uh, I've done plenty myself on here. He said, uh, fans have already paid a significant amount of money to be at the Crucible and will go on to spend a lot on food, drinks, hotels, etc. Given that the earpieces are simply FM radios that can tune to the lower... Uh, lower range with the specific frequency being broadcast uh, stored in memory against buttons on the device, there will be no reason I can think of that the same device couldn't be used season after season if WST would allow it. The battery in them is easily replaceable, and indeed I'd replace mine before getting to Sheffield. This leads me to believe that WST are changing the commentary broadcasting frequency simply to fleece us for new radios each season. Most personal FM radios out there can be tuned to the lower frequency uh, of 80-ish, but some you can buy will reach the 60-ish range used by WST to broadcast the commentary. So I know what I'll be buying for next season. 
I mean, so he's found a way around it there. He says the bigger picture here is not only that WST are ripping off fans in this way, they're also willingly adding to a giant trash pile of disposable plastic electronic devices year on year by doing this. I'll be taking my old ones to the appliance recycling bin at the tip. But how many others will do this? You would expect less than half. Most will just throw them in the bin because it's easier and they will end up in landfill. Think how many people have attended snooker events since these devices have been available and imagine that most of them are now rendered deliberately useless. That's thousands of plastic devices in landfill that didn't need to be there and WST are contributing to our disposable throwaway society with this system. I'll be contacting WST about all of the above but thought it would help to raise awareness of this via your excellent platform. Hopefully I've made my point and I was able to do so without throwing orange powder all over the green bays. Love the podcast, love snooker, keep up all the good work. Good bye-bye from Kev in Leicester. Well, thank you, Kev. A passionate polemic there. Yes, I mean, I was under the impression that you could use those radios all season, so you should have been able to use them at the World Championship. Now, the question is, is it unreasonable to charge you again for the next season? At the end of the day, World Snooker Tour is a business. They're trying to make money from these enterprises. Um, it doesn't help, I suppose, with that argument if you're putting the price up, because that does look like you're trying to get money out of people um, for no good reason. It's like with so many commercial things, there's arguments for and against. Um, but if they say the radio should work all season, then it should work all season. You shouldn't have to be try- asking you to buy another one at the World Championship. Um, it's interesting. I'm always interested how many people actually have them. But it doesn't seem to be a majority of people who have the radios. Um, from what I've, what I've observed. Um, and also they always seem to, someone always seems to have it too loud. It always seems to be at the start of a match, the referee will have to ask someone to turn it down. But anyway, uh, you're, you're going to contact WST. Let us know what they say. If they reply, not always great at replying to things, but if they do reply, let us know what their, what their sort of answer to that is. Now, Asif uh, Nisar from Manchester, he says, I'm a first time emailer. I've been listening to your podcast for over two years and I thoroughly enjoy each episode along with other snooker podcasts. There are other ones, are there? I didn't know that. Apparently, the uh, just between us, the World Snooker Tour podcast is being revamped again. So <laughs> so another revamp. Let's see what, what comes out of that. Anyway, he's, Asif says, uh, it, it has been a great snooker world championship and very refreshing to see a 20-something Luca Brussel win the tournament this year. In particular, his attacking brand of snooker. The main reason for emailing is because I'd like to congratulate World Snooker for listening... Listening to what? Exactly, you may be thinking. They should be congratulated for the following. Okay, so this is praise. Now, bearing in mind, Asif lives in Manchester. So, number one, the Tour Championship next year is to be held in central Manchester. <laughs> yes, well, that, that's good for you, clearly. And, and I think it's good for the tournament. It's, it's a big city and a lot happening. And it's sort of... Yeah, it, 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 I think that'll be a good move. He says, number two, Urban Zoo has been commissioned to create a new website and app. With regards to the first point, this is indeed great news. I purchased tickets for this event as I live in Manchester and have always wanted a tournament in my home city. I may add, the all-day ticket was reasonably priced at £33. After the poor ticket sales this year in Hull, I think this is a great move. Manchester is a vibrant northern city in the heart of the north with an excellent air, road and railway network. The WST website has been rightly criticised in the past by you and others in terms of ease of use. Having said this, I've become accustomed to how it all works and do know how to navigate around the site although I agree the website is too clunky. The news that a new media agency, Urban Zoo, will be creating a new website is exciting and should hopefully create a new, vibrant, easy-to-use website, a mobile app that can enhance the user experience. All in all, this has shown me WST seem to be listening and making the necessary changes needed to take the sport to the next level. WST can be sensitive to criticism 
and be heavy-handed in some of their responses. However, I think the penny has finally dropped and they're making efforts to make the necessary adjustments. There's been a bit of doom and gloom about tournaments being cancelled and the lack of an overseas market. I think with Luca winning the World Championship, this will change and we'll see more tournaments in mainland Europe and hopefully China will be open again for tournaments soon. To make snooker truly global, it will be great to see a tournament in the Middle East and North America. From an avid snooker fan, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the above. Well, <coughs> I've already said I think Manchester's a, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, the website, I don't criticise the content on the website. It's the ease of use, it's the, the navigation. And once something has dropped off that front page, it's virtually gone into witness protection. You, you don't see it again. Or, or you have to sort of um, use a jeweller's eyepiece to find it. So... Um, if there's a new design, that's good. The app is really the one. I mean, the app's terrible. It always has been terrible. I mean, even now, I mean, I clicked on it the other day. I don't know why, but I clicked on it. And they're counting down. So the next tournament is the European Masters. Well, it isn't. The next tournament's the Championship League. Uh, they got the date of the European Masters wrong. They're going off, off last year. So, they, so it's sort of 77 days to go or something. But it doesn't start on that date this year. It's a slightly different date. So, you know, it's no good. It's no good. But anyway, there's going to be a new one. We will see what it's like. Um... In terms of the website, it would be quite interesting. I know they're, they're looking to put extra content on and sort of a few more stats and make it a bit more in line with what you see in other sports, and that's good. And as you say, and I think it's it's a fair point, they have listened to criticism and they have attempted to change a few things. You'll never please everybody. They did a survey recently, which I, uh, I, f- I filled in myself out of interest just to see what the questions were. Um, and they were asking a lot of interesting questions about what people want and what people like. It's always interesting, that sort of thing, because you have to then look at these replies and, and you'll get lots of different perspectives and lots of different sort of ideas. So it's a question of where do you sort of, where do you sort of collate it? How do you collate it all? Because you'll get wildly varying opinions. Um, but it's good that they're actually bothered enough to ask people. Um, I know there was a bit of criticism because uh, when you had to fill in where you were from, it was basically <laughs> all the regions of Britain and then there was one box for the rest of the world, which doesn't look good for a world body. But anyway, at least they actually put the word out there, and we await uh, we await developments in terms of uh, the, the website and indeed and indeed the app. And in terms of tournaments elsewhere, uh, Belgium would seem an obvious place right now. The place that I was uh, I was speaking with uh, quite a senior person at Eurosport the other day, and they were saying that. But the Belgian figures were great. They were great everywhere. But the, pla- the place where the figures have really gone up is Spain. Spain now is, uh, you know, a very, very, um, in terms of television ratings, a very, very hot place for snooker. Uh, now, I met a man 20 years ago, a Spanish snooker player in an amateur tournament. He told me then there are only eight tables in Spain. So clearly things have changed. I mean, there may not be that many more now, but... The interest is there, and that is entirely down to Eurosport. It just is, because they've been able to see it. So uh, kudos to my uh, colleagues at Spanish Eurosport, and, well, that'd be a great place to go to, wouldn't it, if we could could just sort of harness a bit of this interest. One of the problems is I I think WST are quite sensitive to the idea that they're just putting on tournaments for the top players. You know, there have been a a few recently where, I mean, Hong Kong Masters was one, for example, um, and a couple of others where it's sort of... It, it seems to be just for the top players. I mean, the players' series isn't. The players' series is for the most successful players that season, which is why some of the top players actually weren't in them. Um, but in terms of uh, going somewhere like Spain, you could take the top eight in the world to Spain, and that would cost a lot less than trying to put on a, a full ranking event. But it's whether they want to 
go down that road or not. But it would be nice to think that certainly Europe could be um, explored more. I mean, we've been to various places. You've been to Belgium. I mean, snooker's been big in Belgium. But um, anyway, this is, seems a great chance with Luca Purcell being world champion to go back there. Uh, Pavla Starsik, who, whose name I suspect I always pronounced incorrectly. But anyway, thanks for writing in. He said, do you know anything about the new format of the Tour Championship? Well, this was announced uh, during the World Championship. The format has changed. Uh, Pavla says, uh, as I understand, there'll be 12 players in it. So I was wondering about a format. Firstly, widening it to 12 players might not be a bad thing, as it is perceived right now. Let's see, what do we know so far? The tournament still has seven days, which means that best of 19 matches are out, at least for the last 16 and quarterfinals. Perhaps the quarterfinals uh, draw have to be settled in one day, somewhat like in the Champion of Champions. But here you would not have three matches during the day, but only two. He says, I'm th- I do know, th- I'll, I'll read this, but I do actually know what the format is. But anyway, he says, I'm thinking, hoping the format would look like this. So he's saying Monday to Thursday, we'll have the last 16 and quarterfinals. That's uh, a best of 11 in the afternoon. Uh, and then in the evening, a best of 11 with the uh, seeds 1 to 4, playing the winner of the match between seeds 5 to 12 in the afternoon. Friday and Saturday semi-finals, best in 19. Sunday, best in 19 final. As much as we all want best in 19 matches, from the organisers and sponsors' point of view, evening sessions in such, ma- in such matches can be rather short and not so dramatic. And they want evening sessions to be entertaining and as long as possible. What rather often happens with best in 19 in the Tour Championship is in the afternoon, which is not primetime TV, one player leads 6-2 or 5-3. Then in the evening, that 5-3 can become 7-3. And that's it for the night. No excitement, no drama, no nothing. Therefore, we can understand why organisers and sponsors don't want this format. So we're losing longer matches, which is a bad thing, but what are the perks of the new system? We get two beautiful best of 11 matches every day, and they're all little finals, and they're being played between informed players. At the very end of the season, and every evening, we would get drama, both players starting from zero, and both having chances to win. Best of 11 matches are usually semi-finals of the biggest tournaments during the year, so there's nothing wrong with them. Question marks would be around whether afternoon matches should be best of 11, as there might be long and tiring for the player that you're supposed to play again that night. If all best of 11 frame matches are played with a mid-session break, that can be three or four hours, so it starts at 2 o'clock CET, it might end around 5, the player will still have three hours before 8 o'clock. And that very player would in the evening play on the table that he got to know during the afternoon and that he owned just a couple of hours ago. Also, not all matches are going to go all, all the way. If it's 6-2, it could be done in two hours. Also, in the 2023 format, one player could play best of 19 during the day. With the 2024 format, there could be 22 frames for one player, which is not that much more than 19. And if that is both matches, going all the way. Then for the semi-finals, jumping back into the organisers and sponsors' shoes, can semi-finals be best in 19? I think the answer is yes. Coming back to the afternoon sessions and not in prime TV, prime time TV, uh, one semi-final is played on Friday afternoon when people are still working, but the other one is played on Saturday. So we can expect people to be free and watch the whole match. The only bad session there is Friday afternoon. And besides that, that you get three beautiful sessions, two evenings and a Saturday afternoon, and you give people more best of 19 matches. <laughs> I'm still reading this, but I have to say, this is not going to be the format. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have read it all out, because this will not be... I mean, if I, why don't you, I don't I'll just cut you short. Why don't I just answer the question, which I do know what the format is. They're all best of 19 still. <laughs> um... It, it is 12 players. They're going to use two tables uh, for the first few days. So there was a big discussion about this tournament. There's been a definite, and again, it, it goes back to Will Snooker Tour trying to move things on. 
there's been a definite effort to make this into one of the real majors of the game. It's hard to know how long a tournament has to be in existence before it can be considered that. I mean, the Tour Championship only started in 2019. But because it's so elite, it's for the best performers all, se- all season, um, there's been an effort to build it up. Prize money's gone up, as we know, with the going to Manchester. Um, now, there were various ideas put forward, various discussions, which I don't think it's any harm to reveal, about what to do with the tournament. And one of them was to get more players in. Now, that is in part, I think, a response to the fact that some of the, the ticket sellers and the big names didn't get into it um, this year. Extending it to 12 wouldn't necessarily have meant they'd have got in it um, this year either. Neil Robertson and Ronnie O'Sullivan, for example, still would have missed out had it been the top 12. Um, but obviously there's more chance. There was some discussion about... The one anomaly a lot of people feel is that the only tournament that doesn't count towards the Tour Championship is the World Championship, because, of course, it falls after the Tour Championship. So should the previous year's World Championship count? Or, uh, an alternative, is just if you win the World Championship, one of the perks is you should get in it. And then discussion turned to, well, if you win the Masters, maybe you should get in it. That's another big tournament. Maybe that should you should be in it as of right if you win the Masters. So Judd Trump, for example, this year would have got in it. Things get a bit sticky there because, obviously, it's supposed to be just for this season. So if you're, if you're taking away, you could argue, places for achievement this season. But if you extend the tournament to 12 players, I guess you're not. You, you still, if you're in the top eight, you'll still get in. It's just a, a way of getting in other top players. Anyway, that was all discussed, but it seems what's going to happen is it will be still, I guess, a meritocracy. It's the top 12 this season. They're not going to play best of 11. That, again, that was discussed, and you, you laid out the case for... Actually, that could be better for TV sometimes because the match can be longer. If, if a best of 19 is 10-4, for example, then you're only going to see, what, six frames at night. Um, a best of 11, you might have a 6-4, that's 10 frames. Um, so uh, it was discussed, but it's, the decision has been made. They're going to keep it as best of 19 because in some ways that is the selling point, the fact they are all on matches. But as there's two tables, if one finishes quickly, there's a chance the other one won't. Now, the obvious problem for ITV is they have main table coverage and uh, at the moment in their tournaments there's not any real um, facility to show table two but that I think is changing there's discussions uh, to move that online so maybe by next year's tour championship you'll be able to watch table two as well Um, so you know it's been quite interesting because I was party to a few discussions around this just people's opinions on it and within the game some people felt commercially it was it we needed the world champion in it for sure, because he's whoever it is. I mean, it was Ronnie O'Sullivan this year. It'll be Luca Purcell next year. Whoever it is, they will bring something to the tournament, um, and it, it makes sense to make that count. The Masters champion as well, maybe. But it seems World Snooker Tour have decided that they don't want to go down that route again. Just sort of, I suppose the argument against it is you're rewarding people who have already been handsomely rewarded, um, whereas actually it's about this season. And I do kind of see that. I sort of see all sides of it. But anyway, I think. The bottom line is moving it to Manchester. Whoever the 12 players are will actually make it uh, probably feel like a bigger event. Tickets apparently are selling well, I've been told. So that's good. Uh, Already on sale and uh, selling well. And yeah, it still has that special feel. Really what it is now, it's the World Match Play Championship, which was a a tournament that was held 30 years ago. That was literally for the top 12 (laughs) players on that list. So it's basically that tournament. And that was a great tournament, actually. Had a best of 35 final a couple of times. Uh, but anyway, uh, bottom line is, and that, I, I'm sorry I cut your email short, but I kind of, fe- I kind of felt it was becoming futile because 
right at the start you asked me, do I know what the format is? And I do, and that is what the format is. It's all best in 19. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I think it'll be a good tournament on, on that basis. <clears throat> now, we'll have a couple more, I think. Michael Smith, long time listener, first time correspondent to the podcast. Just wanted to share a story from my only snooker trip to date at last season's UK Championship at the Barbican in York. Rob Walker, did a bit of talking to the crowd before the camera started rolling and picked three people with specific names. He gave each of these people a token that would entitle them to a free pint in a local pub. He asked that they, in return, send him a selfie of themselves enjoying that pint. This was in memory of three friends of his who shared those names and had sadly passed away within the last year. He was making a collage for the families and wanted to focus on positivity and generosity in such sad times. This story stuck with me and shows what a wonderful person Rob is. Me and my father had a fantastic time in York. Watched Neil Robertson against Joe Perry in the first round. Having never experienced live snooker, we will definitely be back. And uh, on the same subject, Matt Tarrant said he I've donated to Rob Walker's ride after following the link on the WST site. Rob is such a good bloke and these are such great causes. He's clearly been through it recently. As a cyclist and runner, I'm hoping to join him for a few miles. And never know, I might bump into you. Well, this is, um, this is Rob Walker's... Uh, Miles for Mates uh, Absent Friends Tour, which is actually starting, I'm recording this on Sunday, it's starting tomorrow, Monday, and it's 18 days, and he's cycling each day uh, across the country, from John O'Groats in the north of Scotland to Land's End in the south of England. And he's raising money, he's hoping to raise £25,000 for a brain tumour charity, because one of his friends passed away having had a brain tumour, and also for Jesse May, which is... uh, hospice um, that cares for children and their families and is the official World Snooker Tour charity. So they're the two charities he's raising money for. He lost three of his friends and and as our correspondent Michael pointed out there, he um, at York, he, in, if you had the same name as one of his friends, he would give you, a, as he says, a voucher for the pub. He bought all these pints. The idea is you take a picture, send it to Rob, and he was making, as, as Michael pointed out, a collage for the families. Uh, in their memory and then subsequent to that and really really sadly a, a boy that his, his own son knew uh, where they lived passed away at the age of nine suddenly um, and obviously that was incredibly upsetting and so in memory of all four of them Robbie's doing this this charity endeavour and I would ask uh, all snooker fans if they can I know times are tight but if they can to donate to it because if he does get to 25,000 Matchroom, who have a charitable uh, arm, are going to match the uh, donation. They're going to uh, donate twenty five thousand of their own. So he could actually end up with over fifty thousand. As as I record this, he's already halfway there. It's twelve and a half thousand already. Um, and he, uh, Rob, is such a people person. He he's going around the country. He wants people to to come and speak to him, talk about people maybe they've lost. And as I think the the, the great phrase in in that email. He wants to focus on positivity and generosity. I think a lot of us, you know, when you go through bad, bad times, you sort of think, oh, it'd be great if I did this and maybe I could, you know, in, in in memory of whoever do that. And for most of us, they're just sort of thoughts we have. But Rob has actually made it happen. He's giving out champagne and uh, Will Snooker Tour going to be filming some of it. And he's going to be meeting a few snooker people. John Higgins, I think, is one of them and, and various other people have promised to turn out. And I will indeed. My, my role in this is to... I'm going to meet Rob for a drink in a pub, which is not the most onerous. He's cycling across the country. I'm having a drink. That's how it works. But as I say, if you can donate, just uh, go on 
if you go on Rob's Twitter, it's there, the Just Giving page. It's easy to find, and all the details are there. And yeah, he's going to be doing that for the next three weeks. So um, that's uh, a pretty remarkable uh, feat. I mean, you know, it's, he's a fit man, Rob, make no mistake, but it's still a big task <laughs> to cycle across the country over three weeks. But that's what he's doing, and uh, fair play to him. Now, we actually have a couple more, uh, or one here about uh, attending a tournament. Keith McLaughlin. Uh, from, from Dublin, living in Birmingham. Keith says, I recently sent an email in March about snooker venues. I went along to the World Championship in Sheffield and also went to the qualifiers at the Sports Institute, which was also very good. We went to the Milkins-Perry game on the Tuesday night because we follow Rob Milkins. It was meant to be the last session, but it was the first session due to the crazy antics of the first night of the protesters. I did enjoy the Crucible again, up to a point, I must say. The Century Club ticket holders have kind of ruined the experience. I feel in a few ways. Firstly, they're in and out of their seats like yo-yos the whole time, constantly moving around. I was listening to some of them in the queue beforehand, and they genuinely don't have a clue about snooker. They're just going there as if it's an event. Oh, sorry, as it's an event. Secondly, it's an awful look on TV, the amount of times the front couple of rows are empty. Even last night in the final, there are empty seats. Snooker is a working-class sport, and I find, and this, I find, is moving away from the grassroots of the game. A person on the last show asked how the protesters got front row seats, but Will Snooker helped them out with, with the protest. I feel as you could buy sentry seats for that game only a few days beforehand. We could have gone to the Mark Selby Matt Selk game on the Wednesday, but after the experience on the Tuesday night, I wasn't overly pushed, so we headed off to the Peak District for a lovely day out. I'm now hoping to get back into the outdoors more in the future. On the meeting of Snooker players, I've seen a good few around Sheffield, but I don't really bother going up to any of them and possibly annoying them. I like to leave them to themselves. We would have met plenty of players years ago at Goffs and Ken Doherty would often practice at my local club in Dublin. He'd often let us watch him practice. Even today, I'm planning on hopefully getting to a few tournaments again next season. Just hope something can be done on the century tickets as I don't think it works at the Crucible. Well, Keith, I mean, I spoke to, uh, well, a very well-known snooker fan uh, in Sheffield and he was saying that actually a good compromise could be to give the century club members the chance to watch from the balcony, which is a good view there, uh, but it's not in the front. So if those seats are empty, you don't see it on telly. That's that's really the, the issue. It's the visuals, it's the optics. You wouldn't see that if they were sat in a different place in the Crucible. He was saying the front row actually isn't as good as you might think. He prefers to be a little further back, and he's been going for years. So maybe that's a compromise, but I, I think next year you know, they will actually be in the same place. So I don't think the issue's going away. Now, our last email this week is from an anonymous emailer. <coughs> Doesn't leave their name. And I don't know, I don't think they work in snooker, but I don't, I don't know why they've done that. But anyway, it didn't really matter. He says, I tried to make this a short email, but it's ended up being a bit of a rant. Though I would send, thought I would send it anyway as a means of airing these ideas. My takeaways, based on visiting the Crucible this year for the first time since the pandemic. Number one, bring back the Humo Masters. At least one ranking tournament in Belgium, Antwerp ideal next season. Absolutely essential to build momentum. Humor Masters was uh, a Belgian invitation event. Uh, there have been ranking events in, in Belgium as well, uh, most recently in Lommel. But yeah, I mean, I think most people agree, if, if we can't get one on this season, then when are we going to get one on there with Luca Purcell's success? And also, it's got to be said, Ben Mertens and Julian Leclerc, both very talented young players. They played each other in the qualifiers. Mertens won that one. Leclerc was in the shootout final. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Mertens... He played on TV a few times last season and, and looked a bit of a prospect. So it, it, all round in Belgium, things are on the up. Number two from, from Anonymous. 
The World Championship trophy is iconic. Kazoo picked up on this and used it in their logo for the sponsorship. But the trophy shape silhouette doesn't appear to be trademarked or commoditized. Indeed, the first result when I searched for the trophy was something selling full-size replicas on eBay. Uh, other iconic trophies, such as the Open Golf, FA Cup, Wimbledon. Uh, there should be a... Tra- that's all. Yes, you could also buy replicas of those. Uh, there should be a trademark logo that could be used for merchandise and an emoji. Very odd to see official accounts, senior people in snooker, using a generic trophy icon to congratulate Luca. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, I don't know how that works. How do you get an emoji? <laughs> do you have to write to the emoji council? I don't know. But um, it's an interesting point about the... You would have thought by now, after nearly 100 years, that trophy would have been trademarked. But anyway, that's a, an interesting point. Number three from Anonymous. Merchandise offering at the Crucible is appalling. Selling exactly the same tat that was available at tournaments 15 years ago. Given the price of tickets and age profile of people attending, there's a fortune to be made. For example, tasteful merchandise with the trophy is a logo. Again, look at the Open Golf, for examples. Uh, also, the mugs with snooker balls that the BBC team were using on screen. It'd be interesting to know how much Jason Francis took at the Ronnie O'Sullivan shop near the Crucible. The money is there, and it just needs products. Well, yes, I mean, that, uh, that Ronnie O'Sullivan shop... Uh, they were selling merchandise for the whole tournament, and uh, I think they, they did quite well. I'm, I'm not saying they did a roaring trade. I don't know. I wasn't in there. But every time I passed by it, there were people in anyway. Um, and this is the thing. I mean, players, of course, you know, could have their own merchandise. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan has got a shop there. But, you know, he's, he's actually he's actually done something uh, to try and build up interest. He's got his own shop with his own products, and, and, and you can buy Ronnie O'Sullivan T-shirts and mugs and so on. Um but, uh, you know, most of the other players don't have that. Uh, I think Mark Williams has, has got his sort of uh, bit of clothing as well. But it, it's not a line that... Again, a lot of players, I think, want, want other people to do these things. But, you know, you've got to market yourself. I mean, you look at Sean Murphy, he's got a podcast. Uh, Ronnie's got his shop. Um, various players have got a YouTube channel. Stephen Henry's got a YouTube channel. But some of the other top players don't seem to have any of that stuff. Uh, anyway, the fourth point he wants to make here, uh, he or she, we don't know who it is. Tickets for the 2024 World Championship are expensive, i.e. row E tickets for the quarterfinals have gone from £66 to £132, including booking fee. And they're still selling out in minutes. I was in place 3,000 in the virtual queue at 9am on the Sunday. The final had sold out before I got in. This and the overall experience of the venue, which feels incredibly old-fashioned and not in a good way, leads me to the regrettable conclusion that the event has outgrown the crucible. It needs a 2,000-seat venue with a hospitality area like the Masters, not the front-row seats, and wedding reception style setup that is the Century Club. I think World Snooker should consider a bespoke arrangement similar to this, the structure designed and built by the TED organisation for its events in Vancouver. It could then be constructed inside any number of conference event venues in the UK, including in Sheffield. You could still have the Crucible experience, two tables separated by a partition, front rows on top of the players, etc., but have more seats and spectators, 360 degrees around the table. Ideally with cup holders so you can take your drinks in. So this, he sent a link here to, <coughs> essentially, yeah, it's, 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 it's a way of sort of constructing an arena within an arena, which they sort of do at the Alexandra Palace already. Um, so you could sort of have a, a crucible style experience within another building, is the idea. I mean, this is the sort of drumbeat about the crucible continues and we're going to hear more of it because the, the, um, contract renegotiation is coming up and there's going to be a lot of talk about should it leave and, and do we need a bigger venue? I always think with this, careful what you wish for. Um, I, I see the arguments for a bigger venue. It means more people can go. And therefore, in theory, tickets would be uh, less expensive. Although, let's see about that. If they could if they could still 
charge 132 quid for a 2,000 seat arena, they would, make no mistake. Don't, th don't think the prices would necessarily come down because we're going to a bigger place. Um, what we have, of course, is the history of the Crucible. What we also have, though, and people, I think, sometimes fail to sort of appreciate this, it's a theatre, and snooker, at its best, is theatre, and it's perfectly designed for that, a theatre in the round, uh, just the, the configuration of that place where the audience sit, with the players literally on a stage. You're not going to get that same kind of feel at convention centre, where... Typically, the crowd are a long way from the table. I mean, the Tempodrome is a great venue in Berlin, but the crowd are a long way from the actual table. It's not quite the same intimate feeling. But, I, I mean, I've spoken a lot about the Crucible. I'm a fan of it. I do feel that its days possibly are coming to an end. I'm not saying I want them to be, but equally I'm not going to be, you know, gluing myself to the building if it happens. If it happens, it happens. You know, change happens, and we have to get on with it. But I think it would be a very sad day. I do feel that keeping it in Sheffield and not having it in the Crucible is actually the worst solution. A lot of people seem to say it's the best. I, I, I feel the opposite. It's not about Sheffield, I'm afraid. It's about it's about that building, and it would be awful on day one. You can imagine all the photographers going down to the Crucible. <laughs> if the tournament's played somewhere else in Sheffield, taking pictures, it's empty, you know, there's nothing happening. You know, it, 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 it's, not, it's not a great thing to think about. But anyway, we'll see. The next few years will be crucial. There's not going to be a second Crucible and all that. That, that was all nonsense. Um, it's either going to stay there or it's going to leave and we're going to find out in a few years time um, I know a lot of snooker fans would love it to stay there but it's also true and it's been a point is continually made and it's well made people are being priced out of going there so it's all very well having the history but if you can't afford to go maybe it is time to look elsewhere again the caveat to that is if they can charge you a lot of money to go elsewhere, they will do, because I'm afraid that is capitalism, and that is how we've decided we want to spend our time in the, in this current moment in history. We want to have uh, the free markets, and that's been very popular with a lot of people, but it's also uh, left a lot of people, I'm afraid, on the outside. But that's a discussion for another time. This is not question time. Uh, well, it is in a way. People send questions, and I try and answer them. But anyway... We're, we're, now this we won't be back next week. It'll be a, maybe three weeks, something like that, to the next one. Um, but uh, I just wanted to re-establish the podcast. So we're still a part of the Sports Social Network. They had they, there was a podcast. Um, I don't know what you'd call it, really. Convention, maybe. I didn't go, but uh, Sports Social Network. I had my podcast on their sort of wall, their signage, which was nice to see. Uh, <laughs> uh, just what these small things. Sort of, keep you going in, in, when the season's not, not on uh, anyway uh, you can email snookerscenepodcast at mail.com snookerscenepodcast at mail.com the more niche the better but anyway that's it for now so as I say the next two specials we're going to have a book special where we'll be discussing three new books that have come out uh, of late and oh, I may as well say what they are I mean, you may be able to, to buy them beforehand and therefore follow the discussion so we've got Deep Pockets by Brendan Cooper which is a kind of philosophical book, really. It's an existential look at snooker. Uh, we've got The Natural by Luke Williams, which is about Patsy Houlihan, which we've mentioned before. And uh, John Skilbeck, I'm not sure this, if this book is out yet, but John Skilbeck has written a book called Goody Two-Shoes about the 1982 World Championship, which Alex Higgins won. But it's not just about Higgins. He's, uh, we'll put it this way, he's interviewed Silvino Francisco. He's interviewed John Bear's wife. It's a very niche, but very well-written and interesting book. So they're the three books we're going to be discussing, hopefully with all three authors. And then after that, 
I plan to do another fan special where we'll be maybe picking up some of the issues that have been discussed in the emails today uh, about some of the uh, the realities of being a fan and trying to follow snooker live at venues. Anyway, that's it. It's nice to be back, and thank you for all the emails. And uh, we will, if you do see Rob Walker, don't feel shy about uh, going to speak to him. Uh, maybe wait till he's off the bike. <laughs> but uh, he'll be around the country, and he's, he's the route he's on his. Uh, he's posted up on that uh, uh, social media and, and just giving page, so you can find out when he's in your area. Uh, but in the meantime, we still say it. How could we not? Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.